Father, where is it that we place our hope? Where is it that we can find a place so secure, a rock, strong enough, powerful enough to hold who we are, what we've done, what we will do? Our lives, our, our dreams, all things, both good and bad. Lord, they're all in Your hands to hold. And through Christ our Lord, we have forgiveness. Lord, we have acceptance. We have all the things that we need to live lives that are worthy of Your calling. May we do that today. May we do it every day. Father, the time that we have right now is now. May our hearts be turned toward You in worship and praise. We thank You for who You are, what You have done. We give You the glory and the praise and the honor that's due Your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please uh, have a seat. Around 11 p.m. on January 28th in 2013, I mentioned this before, during a training flight over the Adriatic Sea off the coast of Italy, an F-16 pilot was killed when he ejected over the cold, black dark of night at near the speed of sound. It was my unpleasant duty to be with the deputy commander as we went to his wife around midnight to inform her that his aircraft was down, that he was missing at sea. And three days later, I was with the commander when we told her that the searchers had located his body. He was a decorated pilot. He was a combat-proven pilot in multiple deployments and multiple engagements. He was saved with saving a lot of soldiers' lives as he would come swooping in out of the sky with those 20-millimeter rounds breaking up the ground. He was an academy grad. His father was a storied World War II general. He literally had thousands of hours and millions of dollars of training. He was the safety officer for the squadron. So what happened? While I didn't know if he was dead or alive at the time of our first speaking with his wife, I did know what had happened. Because before I got to the house to say that he was missing, the the deputy commander said that the last transmission that they received indicated that it was spatial D. Now, spatial D is short for spatial disorientation. Flight Surgeon Lieutenant Colonel Rob Monberg, he was an Air Force uh, flight doc interview, interview, he said that spatial disorientation is uh, omnipresent danger to any pilot, no matter how experienced, no matter how skilled, no matter what aircraft, no matter what mission. With his jet in a rapid descent, and there's a uh, 
there's voice alarms in the, in the cockpit for those of you who may be aware. Uh, a woman's voice saying first sink rate, sink rate, sink rate, meaning you're, you're losing too much altitude too quickly, followed by pull up, pull up, pull up. And with those in his ears, and not knowing where he was at, he ejected and was killed. His complete final transmission were these words. These are the last things anyone in the outside world ever heard. Knock it off. Spatial D. Knock it off is a phrase the Air Force uses when there's something involving an immediate safety issue. Knock it off. It's not a, you know, knock it off. It does, that's not what it means at all. It means make everything safe. Stop now. And when he says knock it off, spatial D, he means break off the engagement. Stop what you're doing. I have lost reference of my body in the air as it relates to the ground. I don't know if I'm up. I don't know if I'm down. I don't know if I'm turning left. I don't know if I'm turning right. I don't know. We've all felt this to some degree. Perhaps you've startled awake as you were falling. That's the feeling of spatial D, spatial disorientation. And if you didn't have it that way, you most certainly had it when you were in youth group or at school where you, you know you, how you would take the bat and you would run to the bat and, and, and with the bat on the ground, you put your forehead on it and you go around in circles and then you, you know, you're, you're running off. Spatial D. Knock it off. Stop what you're doing. I believe at this very moment in American society, we are experiencing spatial D. We don't know if we're up or down, left or right. We don't know where we are in relation to the ground because there is no ground. We're floating out in space. Knock it off. Our society needs to hear it. It needs to hear the church say it, but the problem is the church has practically lost her voice. Knock it off. Won't work anymore. We don't have a shared value system any longer. There is no true north. There's a no longer an objective value system. This is seen no clearer in an individual's, a community's, or a society's view of justice. Let's look at Proverbs 17.15 for a few moments. Continuing our study in Proverbs, I, we're really not studying Proverbs as, as such because as I mentioned my very first message on Proverbs, there would be about 240 messages. And so uh, we're going through Proverbs. 17.15 reads this way, He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. The one who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous has spatial D. That one, that person, has abandoned objective values. 
and they've embraced subjective values. As Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who call... You know, and I like woe in, the, in both ways in English. Woe meaning woe, right? But woe meaning like a horse. Stop it. Woe, woe. Woe to those... Stop! Knock it off to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here recently, a Harvard Law School graduate, Kendra Albert, said at a speech to lawyers, or those who will soon be lawyers, at Harvard, that free speech is both sexist and racist in its underpinnings. The entire concept should be reevaluated. These are our these are the people who will ultimately be making decisions as to what our nation is. Words that she doesn't like, she doesn't state it this way, but it's implicit in what she's saying. If she doesn't like the word, it becomes hate speech. Ooh, that's hate speech. Banned. <laughs> so free speech now becomes bound and controlled. Now where does this nonsense come from? And, and, and that's right, it is nonsense. I'll try to explain, but I, I tell you what, I found it a formidable task this week because I'm, I'm trying to take a, something that's really meta and I'm, and, and I'm trying to bring it down to something that we can all understand easily. Uh, so before I uh, try to explain why God considers turning justice on its head an abomination... I want to make two comments. First, while it may appear that I'm addressing a current issue, I am not. Not my intent. Second, uh, I am addressing an issue because it is not new, but it is in fact ancient. You know, the Word of God is powerful. It's a two-edged sword. And I selected this passage some time ago. Recently I read this, quote, There is an established law from the beginning by which material and spiritual are governed. This motion or notion of the law must prevail in order for there to be peace and prosperity in any country. As believers, we know that ultimately it will prevail because the great lawgiver of the universe is perfectly just and holy. Sadly, it does not always govern us. Injustice can be meted out from ignorance, superstition, prejudice, and bigotry, but most commonly from ideology and partiality. Yeah, yeah, I found that in a preacher's commentary. It was written 150 years ago. Nothing new. But even older, Jesus addressed it this way in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and lose heart. Now, I'm not going to slip into a message about prayer, although I easily could, and it would certainly be good and appropriate. But he said this, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice 
so that she will not beat down, uh, beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will the delay, uh, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? There are so many things in there to unpack. But the only thing I want to look at is this judge. And then only as an example that this is an ancient problem. Unlike the Lord, uh, we have little capability of weighing the motives of our fellow human beings. In fact, I think we have uh, almost zero do you know why I say almost zero? I was going to point out there, but no. I, I'm pointing, I don't even know the motives of my own heart. How can I determine someone else's motives when I don't even know my own? And we may unwittingly justify the wicked. We may unwittingly condemn the just. But that's not what's in view here. The proverb is addressing those who justify and condemn because they themselves are unrighteous. You know, last week Dan Smith mentioned 2 Timothy 3.1, quote, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, the word I want to focus on and will carry out through the rest of this message, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying the power. Avoid such people. Now, the ancient Greeks, they use this word heartless, um, in a similar way that we use heart or, or heartless. But not exactly. I mean, to us, heartless essentially means a lack of love or a lack of compassion. Something that's there that we think should be there that is not there. But to the Greek, there was an additional and more primary meaning. And that was the heart was the inner man. The heart was the center of the capacity to make moral judgments. So for the Greek, it was the center of the moral life. The inner man that made moral judgments over passions, over their own passions. Heartless didn't mean necessarily a lack of compassion. It meant an insufficient set of values and morals to keep them from following their baser nature. In other words, it's a value for a person who's value-driven. It is a value that keeps you from running the guy off the road who cuts you off. Now, for the non-value-driven person, it's because the police may put you in jail. But for the value-driven person, your baser nature says, Get him! Doesn't it? Don't lie to me. <laughs> the baser nature says revenge, attack, 
The baser nature says, give me what I want. Whatever that might be. Give me drugs. I want them. Give me sex. I want it. Give me whatever it is that I want. Money, money, money. Right? But the value-driven life says, it doesn't matter that you might want something like that. It's wrong. It's wrong. And that's what they're talking about. When they say heart, what they're talking about is the capacity for moral judgment of the self. Of the inner man. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote this in, uh, in The Abolition of Man, which I, he felt was one of his most significant works, although it was practically ignored at the time. And I think it was one of his most significant works. Uh, it wasn't ridicule, uh, ridiculed. It was simply ignored. It was already in 1943 dated. In 1943, it was already like, what? What, what's, what do we care what a professor of English literature has to say about philosophy? When was the last time you read it? Try to read it. Oh my word. It is thick in the academic sense. It's not a thick book. It is like heavy. He wrote about this, and I think it was, as Chuck Colson said, he spoke prophetically in 1943. It's actually more relevant today than it was in 43 when he wrote it. The primary reason for the book, The Abolition of Man, is summed up in the very first line. And I will come back to this softly. I won't, I, but I could come back on, on this on this in a very strong way. But you'll see when I do. The very first line of that book says this: "I doubt whether we are sufficiently attentive to the importance of elementary textbooks." How would you like to begin a scholarly work like that? I doubt whether we are sufficiently attentive to the importance of elementary textbooks. What a fascinating opening line to one of what he felt and what I feel is one of his most profound works. He goes on to explain that in those works that the philosophy of the next generation is embedded in them and the child is inculcated with them and damaged by them before the child even has an awareness that they exist. They don't have any notion of a philosophy to choose. It's already done. Now here's how I softly come back to it. Former Supreme Court Justice uh, Anthony Kennedy said Friday, not 150 years ago, not 1,000 years ago, not 2,000 years ago. He said 72 hours ago, perhaps we didn't do a good job teaching the importance of preserving democracy by an enlightened civic discourse. In the first part of this century, we're seeing... Now, Anthony Kennedy is nobody's conservative. And he sat on the Supreme Court. But this is what he says, his final line. We are seeing the death 
and decline of democracy. Justice Kennedy is shouting, knock it off! And I hope he still has a voice. The church must say, even if no one listens, knock it off. Look to true north. Look to God's righteous standards. Now back to Lewis's book. He borrowed a metaphor from Plato as a vehicle for his argument. So Plato illustrated the importance of objective virtue or values or ethics. Okay, and it's a metaphor, right? The heart doesn't have any of that. It's just it's a pump. Okay, but we understand heart in many different ways. So what he's saying is, is that without objective virtue, and he, and he, it, there caused there are problems that happen. So his illustration was the head, i.e., rationality, rational thought rules the belly, i.e., the passions through the chest, i.e., the heart. And so that's how he would determine how it was. It was the passions that made us want to do things, whatever it is that we wanted to do, right, wrong, or indifferent. It's whatever we wanted to do. And reason was the thing that allowed us to do that without consequence. You can justify anything. I hope you know that. All you do is pull out that virtue. You pull out that value. You pull out that morality. And you can justify anything. What Lewis was saying, along with Plato, was that the heart is the indispensable liaison between cerebral man, that is reason, and visceral man, that is instinct or passions. Without the heart, any crime, any degradation, any harm can be justified. Lewis, he argued that this middle element, that this, this thing called the inner man was what the Greeks called it. We've, we've heard this, haven't we? Isn't that found in the New Testament? The inner man? Now we know what Paul was talking about. Okay? It's the same thing here. He, he's arguing that it's that element, the heart, the inner man, that makes man, man. Otherwise, we would just be a really smart animal. He says, for by his intellect he is merely reason, and by his appetite he is mere animal. But those two mediated by the heart makes mankind. And I would say makes man generic kind. Let me, uh, let me approach this from another direction because I know I'm trying to really compress some things here. The elementary book that he was critiquing, actually two of them, argued implicitly for moral relativism. That is, uh, that the values, the only values you have and the only values that exist anywhere are inside your head. There are no values out here. There are certainly no values that are determined by God. What a silly notion that is. They don't, they don't exist outside of you. And whatever you value is what you value. And what he's saying is that's just simply baptized passions. So that you have a passion for revenge and you speak it in an ethical way, then what you have done is moved, allowed your head 
to ration or, or rationalize what your passions want to do. There's no ultimate values, no, no right or wrong. Any statement made about right or wrong is simply uh, that purely emotional statement, and therefore illogical, right? Emotions, and they are. Some people say illogical. I just say they're without... Emotions are what they are. They just are. They can't be proven. You can't prove your emotions. You can't disprove them. They're just, you know, a thing. We've seen this come to fruition in our time. And we've seen recently, I'd say within the last several decades, that it's the seriousness of the allegation and not the accuracy of the facts that determines guilt or innocence. Further, it is whether I, as an individual, find you, as another individual, credible or not. Not whether it's objectively so. It doesn't matter. It, 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 that, you see, doesn't matter. You lie because I say you lie. Not because I have evidence, but just because that's my choice. My belly says you're guilty. And I don't have a heart to run that through, so my mind says, liar, cheater. I'm the arbiter of truth, don't you see? I'm the exemplar of integrity. I am the archetype of veracity. It is I who decide and determine what truth is. And if you don't think that that's not where we're at, if you think I'm overstating the case, I invite you, I invite you just to read the newspapers. I invite you to read the Bible. I invite you to let you know that the heart is a wicked thing. It is wicked. And it's only through Christ that we have any power to control our belly at all. 3,000 years of judicial process and progress be hanged. It's what I think. You know, this person believes that truth doesn't exist, certainly doesn't exist independently of self. And thus what you end up with is the inexorable war to capture the narrative. You see, because facts don't matter anymore. Please understand that. Facts don't matter in science anymore. It matters to the individual scientist maybe, but not once it comes into the public arena. It only matters in another way, which I'll talk about in a second. So by capturing the narrative, because you're not concerned with truth and you're not concerned with evidence, the only thing you're concerned with is how compelling is the story. The first chapter of Lewis's book is entitled, Men Without Chests. What an odd, what an odd title. So I, I, had, I went through all that stuff before so that I could get to the title of his, of his chapter because if I'd have said that first, you would go, that would create a really bizarre image in your mind, would it not? Men without uh, chests. And what he's referring to is, of course, Plato in that analogy. And what we're talking about and what Plato meant and what C.S. Lewis meant, but using Plato, was I would simply entitle it heartless. I think that's what the Bible says in 
2 Timothy 3, men and women would be heartless. Lewis argues that a culture without a chest, without a heart, that is without a place of ultimate values, is going to destroy itself. It's going to disintegrate. Let me see. He wrote this in what? 1943. Okay? Because the only truth statements that we can make today... I mean, ethically, we can't make any true statements at all, but even when you do make a true statement, it's going to be mutable, it's going to be provisional, it's going to be temporal. And ultimately, we're going to be entirely dependent on the tyranny of the 51%, and that should scare all of us. Consequently, when you have chestless men and women, heartless, the baser nature Desires and passions are connected to raw intellect only. And that makes us amoral. You know what amoral means? It doesn't mean immoral. It doesn't mean moral. It means just... It, morality is irrelevant. And when that happens, we simply become resources to be manipulated or used like like trees or water or land to be cultivated. I'm not talking about an environmental sense. I'm talking about being used to promote the only value that is capable of surviving in the toxic environment of the heartless man or woman. Do you know what that is? There is a value that's capable of living there. It's called power. For those of you who see J.R.R. Tolkien's work as fantasy or fiction, oh, I invite you to take another look. That man was a deep-thinking philosopher, and yes, he was in literature too. But you know what? Big brains can do more than one thing at once. His handling of the value of power is unequaled with the sole exception of the Bible. For what was Satan's sin? Clearly, he was an angel without a heart. Therefore, his sin was what? His desire to be like God. Did he want to have God's holiness? No. Did he want to have God's righteousness? No. That's not what Satan wanted. Satan wanted God's raw, unadulterated, undiluted power. Power corrupts all that is good. That's the whole point of the ring. Nobody could carry it. Not even Frodo. We think too much about the power of sin and not nearly enough about the sin of power. We joyfully lift up Frodo's ring not understanding that to rejoice in it by definition, means you've already lost your heart. Power. Yeah, that's what science and magic are both all about in a different way, controlling the world around us. And, and, and science with a heart is a wonderful thing. But without a heart, without a chest, without a liaison between the mind and the passions, facial recognition, yes, My iPhone 10 can 
sort me out from everybody else. That's an amazing thing. And you know what? If I said, I won't say it, hey Siri, she'll, she'll wake up. But if you said it, she wouldn't hear you. Does that blow your mind? It should. Rapid whole genome capture. Yes. Artificial wombs. Yes. Exoskeletons, particularly for the aged. Yes. Prediction of criminality. Why not? Cryonics. A lot of people do that. But without a heart, without a chest to mediate, facial recognition leads only to the loss of privacy. Artificial intelligence, I agree with almost anyone who's written about this, leads to the end of humanity. Genome capture, that just simply leads to eugenics. Let's just go back to that trail. Artificial wombs, that could lead to the loss of the nuclear family. Exoskeletons, soldiers can carry big guns then. Prediction of criminality, they made a movie about that. Let's just put them in jail before they do anything. Believe me when I say that the unjust judge did think that he was just. He did not lose any sleep over this widow other than the fact that she was banging on his door. The ruler in Proverbs, who was justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous, thought he was all that and a little bit more. You are mistaken if you believe that you cannot sear and burn your heart out to the point where you don't care anymore and you sleep like a baby. People without hearts, in fact, think they're the most compassionate. That people without value, they proclaim that they are in fact value-driven. You know, some say we're, we're witnessing a mental disorder displayed on a national scale. I say no. I say we're witnessing a moral disorder on a national scale. And it's all predictable. And it's all what happens if you ever abandon Christ. Except for unlike them who have never had Christ, can sear and sear and sleep like a baby. You never will be able to do that. You'll be a miserable human being. You know, in our text, there are some familiar words here. The word justifies is the same word Paul uses in Romans regarding our justification. It's a wonderful word, a word with a deep and rich theological history. And it's moored, it's anchored, it's attached to the person of God Himself. It is God who justifies. It is God who is the basis for and through Christ, the instrument of our justification. What a wonderful word. But we, hear, we see it here in a different way. This judge is justifying wicked people. The person who's doing the judging is a person without a chest, without a heart. Why? I mean, most likely because the unjust judge can, uh, whoever the unjust person is, they gain some kind of advantage Usually, power. The word wicked is also familiar to us. It means ungodly, convicted, condemned, worthy of death, 
morally wrong. We see this in Genesis 18 when Abraham asked God, will you, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Same two words. Many of us are familiar with uh, oxymorons. By the way, you know oxymoron is an oxymoron. Uh, the first part is the, uh, the Greek word that means sharp, and the second part is the word that means dull. So it's talking about how you put two words together, you know, uh, you know, uh, cruel kindness, uh, that kind of thing, and uh, you know, there are some other deafening silence. I want, I want an exact estimate. And amongst the crowd, there was a dull roar. <laughs> That's a definite maybe. Anyway, those are oxymorons, right? Uh, and here, the oxymoron is, justif- is justifying wicked. And, and, and it's something that God finds an abomination because it, represent, and it represents an inversion of the moral order. But there's one thing that we need to sort out. And, and some of you who are theologically astute, that's the reason I had the longer pause a while ago. I wanted you to let it, let it set. Because that becomes the question, right? Is, isn't that what God did? It, is not that what God... I mean, at the heart of the Gospel, there's a truth that flies in the face of our verse. He who justifies the wicked and who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Well, who was condemned and died on the cross? The righteous one. The only righteous one who ever lived. And who's justified? We are. And we're wicked. We were wicked. The reason we're not now is because we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Did not God then in justifying the ungodly and condemning the righteous contravene, break, go against His own rule? You know, I mean, virtuous people desire to unseat judges who are corrupt in our legal system. I mean, our moral sensibilities are assaulted and we want them out. And yet the heart of the Gospel is that God justifies the ungodly. Someone might argue, ooh, John, that is where you're going, is that's sacrilegious. You know, arguing with God. Yeah, you know what? Maybe it would have been, except for I'm not leading anybody's pathway. I'm not ahead on anybody's trail. All you have to do is click in your brain. Romans 3. Oh, Paul already did this. Paul did this, where he says that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are... I'm on the, reading the wrong verse, sorry. That doesn't work. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Let me tell you what, that is the best possible news in the world. The good news is that while I could not earn it, while I could not merit, while I did not deserve it, God, in His great love, gave it to me. Now, if He'd have just given it to me, that's Proverbs seventeen fifteen. but He didn't just give it to me, did He? 
We go on to say that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. You see, our foundation is not some flimsy sentimentality. It's not a rational, a reasoned out thing that we have done, that we have merited at all. It is the massive rock of God's irrefutable righteousness demonstrated in the death and wonderfully proclaimed through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this, because God could spare us through the righteous sacrifice of His Son, He is indeed righteous. And we must not be conformed to the world. Do not... Abandon objective truth. Please, I know some of you wrestle with that. I tried to show you the end of that. Do not abandon objective values. They do exist. They find their fountain in God Himself. And with that as confidence, let us say to the world and ourselves, When we experience spatial D, morally, knock it off. Father, we're we're grateful for Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we think that often, certainly our first thoughts, are that we get to spend eternity with You. But Lord, You've given us a way to navigate this life and this world in a way that puts us in proximity to You in the here and the now. Lord, we don't have to wait. I just am one of those who happens to believe that eternal life doesn't begin at my death. It began when I trusted Christ. And may we all do so this day who have not heard, they have now heard. And in hearing, believe. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.